when counterfeit bills are circulated within the American economy. It's the responsibility of the Secret Service to not only detect these, but seek to remove them from circulation. Now, it's not like these counterfeit bills are run off on an HP inkjet printer. Uh, there is some intentionality on part of thieves in order to make them as best and mo most like the real thing as possible. How is it, though, that these Secret Service agents go about finding the real thing versus the fake thing? How do they know that a bill is counterfeit or real? By studying the genuine artifacts. In order to discover what's real or what's fake, they have to study what's real. They have to know how the artist originally crafted the bill. They have to know all the intricate details of it. So many counterfeit bills that are passed in circulation are, are so close that the human eye cannot detect how they are forged. By studying the genuine artifact, these agents are able to spot very quickly that which is a fake versus that which is genuine. Now what does that have to do with what we're thinking about today? Well, it's because as Christians, since the very inception of the church, there have been those that have sought to be counterfeit Christians. Those that have sought to pass around, circulate a counterfeit gospel. And how are we as a church, how are we as Christians to, to pick up when there is a fake among us? How are we able to adapt uh, and the ability to spot a fake? What evidence should we see in our lives that would demonstrate that we are saved? Perhaps this morning you wonder, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? How, how do we know? How do I know that I'm a Christian? What kind of characteristics should I find in my life? How do I know that I'm saved? What was in the midst of false teaching and false living that Paul holds out for the church in Colossae, the genuine Christian life? He holds out to them, this is what you should expect from Christians, those who are born again believers in Christ. And he demonstrates to them certain characteristics that make evident a counterfeit Christian from that of a genuine. This passage we're studying this morning serves as a summary and transition for the whole letter. We could summarize the whole book of Colossians in this way, walk in the Lord. Walk in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul has taught them the supremacy of Christ, that Jesus is the ruler of the old and new creation, that he is the substance of God's mystery, that he is God's plan for human history, and that in Jesus is the repository of all wisdom and knowledge that this world will ever know. Paul's reminded them that they have been recipients. They have received this great message of reconciliation between God and man. And that they have trusted in Christ and in Him alone. And so, in light of this great and grand revelation that Jesus is the Lord, Paul exhorts them to live in light of the doctrine of Christ. 
that the Christian life is not a static position, but a progressive growth into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That Jesus saves us that we might be conformed to his image. And Paul is calling the church in Colossae to live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this week, we're going to consider together what it means to follow Jesus. What does it look like to stick close to Jesus? And then next week and the week after, we're going to consider what it doesn't look like. And how you and I might be tempted to give ourselves to other means to generate spiritual growth in our life. And then return back in chapters 3 and 4 to the theme of what does it look like to follow Jesus. What behavior should we see change? What, what transformation should we expect in someone who has been born again? Well, friend, in light of that, I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. It's found on page 984, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 and 7. Considering just these two transitional verses this morning. Paul writes, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Walk in him, he says. Walk close to Jesus. Christian living is characterized by their submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Simply put, Christians look like Jesus. The word Christian means little Christ. Little Christ, that's what we're to be. Images of Jesus, reflections of Jesus, a mirror of Jesus. We're not to ask, well, what would Jesus do in this situation? We're to ask, what did Jesus do in this situation? We have an example to follow in Christ. And our lives are be to characterized by our submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, Christianity faced a false doctrine. Back in the 1960s and 70s, it had crept into the church. It was this idea that one could have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And thankfully, men like John MacArthur taught that one cannot have Jesus as Savior and not Lord. Men like Billy Graham preached crusades saying, you can't have Jesus as a Savior. You can't say you know Jesus if you don't submit to Jesus. There is no Christian that is saved by the Lord Jesus and doesn't obey Jesus, that doesn't follow Jesus' Commands. And so this morning, I want us to consider what does it look like? What are the characteristics of walking in the Lord, living in the Lord? We're going to see here in this passage, first in verse 6, that the Christian life is characterized by confession. That we are a confessional people. We confess certain doctrinal truths about Jesus of Nazareth. But, our life doesn't stop at confession. But rather, it leads to conformity. Not only do we confess Jesus is Lord, but we conform our lives to this confession. Our lives are lived in conformity to what our mouth says. 
that Jesus is Lord and we submit to this lordship. So first, look here at verse 6, what the Apostle Paul says. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. He begins with the word, therefore. And any time you come across that in your Bible, you ought to ask yourself, why is it therefore? Why is this word there? Well, it's because Paul is summarizing everything that came before him. Everything that we've studied up to this place, and particularly the gospel message that he has, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you've repented of your sins and trusted in him. He says, if you're a Christian, therefore, this is how you ought to live. Well, he says as much right here in verse 6, doesn't he? As you received Christ Jesus the Lord. What does Paul mean that they've received Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, he does not mean it in the way that we often use it. Often in contemporary Christianity, Paul, or rather we, speak of receiving Jesus into our heart. We say, we've we've received the gospel and we've planted it in our heart. And that's not what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, about receiving Jesus, accepting Jesus. The word receive has the aspect of passing on a spiritual heritage from one person to the next. To receive is to grab hold of. It is the passing down of tradition. That's what the word means, to receive, that they've been handed down a tradition. Now, we don't mean tradition for tradition's sake, but rather a teaching, a body of belief. And this body of belief is is summarized for us in the word gospel. In other words, they've received doctrinal truths about the person and work of Jesus Christ. They have received it. Like a runner passing a baton to the runner after him, so these Christians received that which was handed down to them. They received it from whom? Well, their pastor. Where did their pastor get it from? Well, he got it from the Apostle Paul. Where did the Apostle Paul get it from? Well, he got it from Jesus. Where did Jesus get it from? He got it from his Heavenly Father as a mission to come to the earth, to die for sinners. They were handed down propositional truth about the person and work of Jesus. They didn't come up with these truths, these doctrines on their own. It was a tradition handed down from one generation to the next. Therefore, what they received was not a new revelation, but rather one that is once for all delivered to the saints. It is what they've come to know and believe. Now, why does Paul position this letter in this way? Why does he transition in this way? Because, you see, he's going to counter the false teachers. You see, if Christianity is merely what you think and believe, it is subject to error, it is subject to confusion. But if it is propositional, it is orthodox, it is the passing down of certain truths from one generation to the next, then it is not contextual to one particular people. It transcends people. It transcends culture. You see, if our doctrine is connected to a particular time and place, 
then it is subject to corruption. But the Christian doctrine transcends every country and generation and culture that it is confronted in. We believe doctrinal truths that Christians have believed for 2,000 years. We're not the new kids on the block. We stand on the shoulders of giants. And and this is an important truth lest we drift into some theological error. This is what the church learned in Thessalonica. And we always thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a word of man, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you, believers. It's a passing down from one generation to the next. You see, that's always what it's been. Yes, there has been corruption throughout. Yes, there has been times when the church has corrupted doctrine, when it has got off the main things and the plain things. But you see, what we affirm about Jesus and about the church and about the work of Christ in us is what if we were to get in a time machine and go speak to Paul there in in Rome as he writes to the church in Colossae, then we would hear the same doctrinal truths that we believe and affirm today. That they had received Christ Jesus. But notice here in verse 6 that they had received Christ Christ Jesus, the Lord. The focus here is on the reception of the gospel uh, tradition that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, a lot of times when we think of Christ Jesus, we, we think, well, either Christ is his first name, his last name, his middle name. We're not really sure. But Jesus is the person uh, that lived in Nazareth. Nazareth. He's a, he's a real man. He had blood. He had, had flesh just like us. He, he was the eternal Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary. And he was declared to be the Christ. So it's not his last name. It's not a prefix. It's a position. The word in the Old Testament is Messiah. The Greek word being Christos, Christ. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the long-awaited Davidic king. So to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is king. And for a Roman citizen to say that Jesus is king leads one to execution. Leads one to a Roman imprisonment where, where Paul finds himself. To confess Jesus being the Christ is to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises in the Old Testament. That Jesus and all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. But to confess that Jesus is the Christ and Lord is to confess not only is he the long-awaited king, but that he is the Lord Almighty himself as we read there in Psalm 24. There's a marrying together of the reality that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but the Lord God Almighty, strong in power and strength. That He is God. This was the focus of Paul's teaching in verses 15 through 23. That Jesus is the preeminent one. But Paul here paints a picture of one that does not merely give lip service to Jesus. 
to receive Christ Jesus as Lord is to have a certain perspective from which we are to walk. Oh, we can't say that Jesus is Lord and it not affect our everyday life. And therefore, Paul exhorts them in the first imperative of the whole letter. He says this, verse 6, walk imperative in him. If Jesus is Lord of your life, then walk in him. Now, for some of us, this walking in Jesus is kind of God speak, isn't it? Religious overtones. Walking in Jesus. What does it mean? What well, means to live in Jesus? The word, the word comes from the Hebrew. To walk is to comport oneself, behave oneself, live in a habit and conduct. The idea here of walking is a picture, isn't it? To walk in Jesus is to stick close to Jesus. This is what he prayed earlier in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 10. He prayed that so that they would have him so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He prayed that they would walk, that their life would be characterized by certain behavior. And this is what he'll exhort them in chapter 3, in verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. He says, this is how you once walked. This is how you once lived. But you ought not to live that way anymore. In other words, our walk has changed. Our our behavior has changed. Our living has changed. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, helpfully captures the picture when he says this. So go on living in him. Go on living like him. Go on in the way that you've gone. The Christian life corresponds to our receptivity of Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, Paul is saying in a negative way that if your life has not changed, then Jesus is not your Lord. You see, part of the Christian gospel and the response to the message that Jesus has come and that he is king is to repent and believe. And repent means to stop living your way and to live God's way in Christ. When Jesus of Nazareth began his ministry, Mark tells us that Jesus declared, Behold, the king has come. Behold, the kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe. The declaration that the king has come and that the king is Jesus demands a response. It is either you continue to go your way or you stop and go God's way and by living in obedience to Jesus. Our lives then are characterized by an ongoing submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. To walk in Jesus is to submit to Jesus' commands. He sets the course of our life, and we follow in willing submission to his leadership. Now, I want to be clear here what Paul says. Again, he does not give a command until he lays out some doctrinal truth. And here's the point I want you to take away with, that the imperatives of the gospel always flow out of the indicatives of the gospel. 
The imperatives, the commands of Scripture flow from the indicatives of the gospel, the propositional truths of the gospel. We must make clear that we do not live according to some ethical standards of the gospel and then receive the gospel. Notice the position. You received and then you walk. The message of the gospel is a gift to be received, not a position to be earned through obedience. Friend, you will never obey God enough to earn his love. But if you will trust in the God whose love is demonstrated in the death of Christ, then you too can be saved. Paul reminds us in this passage that our position in Christ is that of recipients and that our receptivity of the gospel transforms our way of life. And therefore... And this is the point we want to consider here in a moment, that as Christians, our lives are progressively characterized by our submission to Christ Jesus, our Lord. So the day we first accept Christ, the day we find ourselves today, ought to have been characterized by a growing submission to the obedience of Christ. And if it's not, we have no reason of assurance of salvation. If you have not been growing in your walk with Christ, if you've not been transformed by meeting Jesus, well, then you've never met Jesus. Because, you see, when Jesus enters into your life, when, Jesus, when you're confronted by Jesus, things change. You either reject him and go your own way, or you are progressively, over time, changed and conformed into his image. The point of chapter, verse, chapter 2, verse 6, is that Christians confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the long-awaited Davidic King, but that their lives are then conformed to his image. Look here at verse 7. Paul goes on to say, So walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul here lists four participles. I know y'all like, man, I love participle day in Greek and grammar, right? Yeah, I know you remember back in high school when you learned grammar and you learned about participles and, and all these things are, are just wonderful things. But, but here, Paul lists four participles that hang off the verb walk. Now, I'm just trying to help you understand that Pastor Chris doesn't come up with these ideas, that this is just merely what Paul says, all right? So Paul says, walk in him, and then in verse 7, he says, let, let me tell you how to do that by giving you four ways to do that, or four characteristics of doing that. What does it look to walk close to Jesus? Well, first, we see here that we're rooted. Second, we're built up. Third, we're established. And number four, we abound in thanksgiving. Number one, we see that those who are conformed to the lordship of Christ have a biblical fidelity. They're rooted. Paul here borrows the language from horticulture, doesn't he? To root out, something to be rooted down in the ground. To be rooted here is in the court of perfect idea that it's, it's, sort of, it's a firm, it's, it's a fixed position. It's rooted it's grounded. To root a tree that is rooted in is a tree that is not susceptible to the storms of life. 
It draws out its nourishment and, and sustenance. It is rooted down. It's a picture we see from Psalm chapter 1. The blessed life. The blessed life. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and leaf does not wither. It's got roots that go deep in the ground. It, it receives its sustenance and its nutrients from the ground below. The Christian life is characterized here as rootedness. Paul says it this way to the church in Ephesus that we ought to be rooted so that we're not blown and tossed by the winds and the waves. So that the Christian, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, Ephesians 3.17 says. Rootedness. Not blown around. Not blown over. They're not confused nor confounded, but unquestionably rooted in their trust in Christ. Biblically faithful. But not only that, he says that you ought to be rooted and built up. Paul loves to mix metaphors. Rooted, built up. He goes from the metaphor of horticulture to the, met, to the metaphor here of what? Of architecture. From agriculture to architecture. Paul goes from the idea of a, of a root going deep to a skyscraper going high. To be built up means to engage in a process of personal and corporate development. To build up, to educate, to grow. In other words, Christians are characterized by a growing spiritual appetite. Notice what he says, built up where? In him. Built up in him. The idea here is that it passively comes upon us. Here Paul focuses not so much on the foundation, but the building off of that foundation. In order for the building to go high, it has to be founded solidly. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says, You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. A spiritual house. Or Jude chapter 1 verse 20, that but you beloved building yourselves up in the most holy faith. Building up. Here's the point. Christians grow. Genuine Christians grow. Now Paul is going to counteract, counter a false teaching. A false teaching that tries to give itself other means to spiritual growth, to manufacture it. And Paul's saying, look, if you're a Christian, you're going to grow. You're going to grow in your spiritual appetite. You're going to grow up into Jesus, rooted and built up in him. To walk in Christ means that we're rooted, that we're built up, and look at there, verse 7, and established in the faith. Paul here paints a picture of a solid biblical foundation. The language here shifts from architecture to the courtroom. To be established means to declare. But the idea here is that of commitment, a proclamation. 
Faith here in this passage is not so much on the individual's faith, but rather in what their faith rests in. Notice what he says. Establish in definite article the faith. The faith. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, it's not so much that they have a lot of faith, but they're established in, they're founded upon a biblical confession that is true. As the psalmist cries out in Psalm 119, my soul melts away for sorrow, strengthen me according to your word. You might ask, well, how do I grow solid in my biblical foundation? How am I established in the faith? How do I become a part of the establishment of the faith? By knowing the word. We grow in our firmness in proportion to our knowledge of the Word. If you find yourself not growing in the faith, it is because you're not studying the faith. And sometimes we are taken in by false teaching because we don't know the Word. And what we want to commend to you members is study the word come early on the lord's day and join a sunday school class Uh, stay late after church and develop relationships so that you can study the word together come out on wednesday nights and learn how to read your bible for yourself and not be dependent upon some teacher on tv to help you understand your bible but rather that you can defend the faith once for all, that you have the skills, that you have the abilities. You you don't need to go to seminary in order to defend the truth. All you need to know is how to read, interpret, and apply God's word to your life. The word of God proves that solid foundation for the Christian life. And here's the point, brothers and sisters, we never grow beyond the word. We'll never grow beyond the word. If you think there's a time in your Christian life where it's, you're going to shut the word, well, It's never going to happen. We ought to continue to grow to know God better in his word. To walk close to Jesus, to stick close to Jesus, is to be rooted, built up, and established in the faith. And he concludes, abounding in thanksgiving. Finally, Paul here says that those who walk in the Lord are those who overflow with gratitude. The picture he paints here is that of the table, abounding, overflowing. Overflowing in what? Overflowing in thanksgiving, in gratitude. Well, who were they to be thankful for or to? Well, why, why was Paul so concerned about thanksgiving? Now, just to be frank for a moment, you know, the, the book of Philippians often gets the the thanksgiving, it's the one that's all about joy and thanksgiving. Joyful thanksgiving, you could say. But you know, Paul uses the word thanksgiving so often in the letter of Colossians that one might wonder if maybe that's not his point. That as one grows to know and understand the gospel, that they grow in gratitude. Why is it that Christians ought to be characterized by gratitude? Because it is part and parcel to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, if you didn't earn salvation, if you didn't merit salvation, if the gospel is a gift to be received, then the natural response isn't to say, whew, I'm glad I worked really hard, but to say, thank you. I did not deserve this. I did not merit this. I did not warrant this. There was nothing in me worthy of this. I am but a wretch. I am a sinner saved by grace. And so the Christian life is one that is characterized by overflowing gratitude. Notice again the word, abundant, abounding. The more you understand the grace of God in Christ, the more thankful you'll be. The more you read the scriptures and are, are, are confronted with your sin, the more grateful you'll be that God would save a sinner such as I. So often we think about our life as if we were worthy, like God was up in heaven saying, man, I want him or her on my team. But we didn't. He no more wanted you on his team than he wanted Satan on his team. We were in active rebellion against him. We, we, we wanted nothing to do with him. We hated God. This is what the Apostle Paul says, that while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. It is but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not because of work done in us, but that he, he might create work in us. And so therefore, our lives are expressed in utter gratitude with God. How do we express this? Well, we express gratitude in prayer. Thank you, Jesus. When's the last time you prayed a prayer of gratitude, of thanksgiving, outside of Thanksgiving dinner? Now, Americans might need to be forced through a holiday to be thankful, but as Christians, Thanksgiving happens every day on the calendar, all right? We ought to every day begin our day thanking God that we made it through the night. If he's the one that gives our breath and our being and the spirit by which we live, we ought to thank you, I made it through the night. I don't care if you're 9 or 90. We ought to thank God we made it. We got another day to serve him, another day to worship him, to give him glory here on earth. Well, to give gratitude that he would save sinners that he would even entertain us and hear our prayers. We ought to give express gratitude through our singing. Friend, this is why we gather to sing gratefully to the Lord that he would save us. We praise him and thank him for the work we, we want to do so joyfully. N.T. Wright has a helpful comment here. He says that gratitude to God is to be the main characteristic of God's people. Amen, it is. Sadly for us as Christians, that's not what we're known for. Sometimes we're known more for what we don't believe than what we actually believe. Sometimes we're known more for who we are against than who we're for. N.T. Wright goes on to say that it is a sign that they are indeed living in the new age. That the church that learns to truly worship God is a church growing in full maturity. 
In other words, a a church that is abounding in thanksgiving is a church that is growing in maturity. If the first thing out of your mouth is what you've done this week, then, then it's going to be hard to be grateful. But if the first word out of your mouth is, but by the grace of God, I did these things. Now we're on the right track. What has God done for you that you can celebrate? What has God done in your life just today, this week, that you could be thankful for? Perhaps it was sin that he held, withheld you from. Some temptation you wanted to dive into, but by the grace of God. Perhaps it was a, a word of gossip, backbiting. Perhaps it was some selfish and indulgent desire, but by the grace of God. Perhaps it was an experience of joy in the midst of deep and dark depression. God shined the light just for a glimmer, just for a moment. The clouds passed, the sun came out. It was was passing, it was fleeting, but, but it was just a glimmer of the hope you needed to sustain you for just that moment this week. Would you be grateful to Him for that? Friend, Paul makes so clear That living a life in Christ is one that is characterized in these four ways. And I wonder, do these characteristics describe your daily life in Christ? If we were to call up one of your non-Christian friends, one of your neighbors that you chit-chat with all the time, and we asked them, "Do, do you see these characteristics evident in your neighbor's life? What would be their testimony of you? Do we expect these of other members of our church? Biblical fidelity? Uh, do, do we expect that, that we grow as Christians, that we ought to see a proportional growth in the life of members around us? Should we expect that? Should we expect that we are grounded and established in the faith or that we have thanksgiving upon our lips, should we not hold each other accountable to these characteristics in our life together? Christians live lives characterized by their walk with the Lord. To stick close to Jesus means that we look more and more like Jesus every day. You know, every one of us has a walk. I don't mean a walk with the Lord. I I mean there are some people here who have notorious walks. Some walk fast and others walk slow. You know who I'm talking about, right? Those are those persons that walk so fast that it's hard to keep up with them. A number of years ago when I was working in the trades, I had a a foreman. We were were plumbing a high school. And I remember we were were working and and we, we had to go to the other side of the campus and by golly, that little guy, by the time we got over there, he's a short little dude, but by the time we got over there, he was uh, 100 yards in front of us. He just had a walk, man. He could cruise down the street. Some of us walk really fast. We can't, it's hard to keep up. And there's some of us that walk like little turtles, don't we? We know them well. We always get stuck behind them in the aisle at Walmart, don't we? It's like, come on, let's go. Let's get your stuff and move on. Let's go. I got things to do. We're known for our walk. 
How are you known for your Christian walk? How is your life characterized by your walk with Jesus? Do we see biblical fidelity in you? Do we see you growing in your spiritual appetite? Do you want to know more of the things of God? Do do we see uh, one who is founded, one who is established, one that's not easily blown around by every wind of doctrine? Do we see one who is grateful for the great things that God has done for them? Brothers and sisters, in this way we walk and stick close to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that your grace might abound in us day by day. Help us, we pray, to stick close to Jesus. Help us as we began this morning with Psalm 19, that the words of our mouth and the attitudes of our hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Jesus, you're our rock, you're our foundation. And so long as we stick to you, we have a firm foundation. Help us, we pray, for your glory and our good in Christ's name, we pray.